a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh man, we've got some great stuff ahead of us today. I just want to tell you right up front, uh, I'll be joined in the second half of the program by Robert E. Wright. You've heard me share his columns over the years on this program. Well, I get a chance to uh, to pick his ample brain, and I'm excited for it. Also, uh, we'll talk a little bit about some, some current events, some really interesting developments in the last day or so. First off, let me thank the sponsors who make this program possible. I really do appreciate them keeping the wolf away from my door so that I can speak truth to the best of my ability and and give it to you for your consideration. You are under no obligation to believe anything that I say or even anything that I share. But I would ask you, please consider if it might give you just a little broader perspective from which to understand the world around us. Because if there was ever a time when we need to be able to think clearly and independently, this is it. During times of crisis, my sponsors include HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and also Garage Door Pros. I make that Garage Door Pro Services.com. So, couple things here. I uh, first of all, I'm 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 trying to to get my mind around the fact that uh, the the president of Ukraine is openly asking NATO, "Would you please?" construct or please um, conduct preemptive strikes on Russia, particularly on Russia's nuclear capabilities so that they don't, uh, I need you to preemptively strike them so that they don't use tactical nukes here in Ukraine. Now, I know there's been some some fear and, uh, you know, some some hype about, well, you know, the Russian uh, atomic train has been moving warheads around and what. I don't know if that's true or not. But you understand, you have the president of a country calling upon an alliance to which he does not even belong and which is not bound to him by any treaty to try to take out another country's nuclear capabilities preemptively. I'm sure that would go over very well. But I'll tell you, the bigger picture, at least the, the bigger thing to me is, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this without, without getting vulgar, the... Uh, <clears throat> The huevos on this guy. <laughs> Gosh, really? What kind of dirt does Zelensky have on Western leaders, particularly American leaders, that he can blackmail them into starting nuclear war? Someone was asking that question on, on Twitter yesterday. I think it's a fair question. And I, and I hope I'm not, you know, sparking fear or otherwise, you know, playing to your fears by, by pointing this out. But wow, what on earth could we accomplish by, uh, well, we better preemptively get into the middle of this. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know. We we live in some interesting times, and, and I don't, I don't want to sound fatalistic when I say this, but I believe that the people who are trying to orchestrate this, this global reset to whatever it is they think that they're going to create, I do believe that there is enough wickedness in their hearts that they would be willing to burn down the house with everybody in it if they don't get their way. 
Make of that what you will. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift now to to something a little more pleasant, and that's just the waste of hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars. <laughs> yes, that's much easier to contemplate than the prospect of nuclear war. But there's no better illustration of legal plunder than the hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars the U.S. government has been sending to Ukraine. Now, Ron Paul has a great article about uh, throwing good money after bad. Ron Paul still is uh, is knocking him out of the park. He says the satirical news headline from uh, from the Babylon Bee. This was a great one. Hurricane ravaged Florida town, raises Ukraine flag, so Congress will send aid. He says it actually made a powerful point about Washington's warped priorities. It's scathing because for seven months, Congress has shipped the American people's money. At that point, it was $65 billion and counting. I think we're closer to $100 billion by now. To Ukraine. Money that could have gone to disaster relief or even, perish the thought, been returned to the taxpayers. In July, after four months of support for Ukraine, and when the total was only $54 billion, that figure accounted for more than what U.S. taxpayers paid for the first five years of the Afghan conflict. Ron Paul says just last week, when Congress passed its continuing resolution to keep the government funded through mid-December, they included $12 billion more in new aid to Ukraine. So as the Fed recklessly prints more and more money, he says, I have to ask, what has this $65 billion gotten us? And when will it end? Now, he points out, too, never since the Cold War have we been so close to nuclear war, and the thought is terrifying. This is a conflict that could make Iraq and Afghanistan pale in comparison. And unlike those countries, Russia has an enormous military as well as a nuclear arsenal. Their allies are not insignificant either. So whatever hope there was for peace in the early months of the conflict has been eclipsed by months of escalation with no end in sight. The killing and the suffering of the past seven months is incalculable. And on top of all this, our international relations are fracturing rapidly. China increasingly is viewing us as a future threat, as is Saudi Arabia. India is suspicious, as are many people in Europe who are witnessing their economies on the brink of collapse. We are witnessing the American empire overextending itself like never before. And he says the future is truly more dangerous than ever. And of course, the Washington neocons are all in. The military-industrial complex is driving us to the brink of disaster and the harm to everyone, Americans, Ukrainians, Russians, Europeans, only worsens as this goes on longer. The latest U.S. military aid package falls short of replacing steep Ukrainian losses and amid their continued offensives which means they will need more and more and more until the American people have had enough or until there's nothing left. And then he points out something that everybody needs to get their mind around, and that is the aid money that we're sending to Ukraine isn't going to Ukrainians. It's going to one of the most, if not the most, corrupt governments in the world. Now, that's a profound betrayal by the Biden administration and Congress to the suffering American people they serve. This war benefits nobody but the military-industrial complex. It will no more benefit Ukrainians than the Vietnam War benefited the Vietnamese. And he says, we cannot be silent. This is madness. From Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan, every Cold War president saw avoiding nuclear war as the highest priority. The current administration appears to have no such inclination. Nothing could be more dangerous. He says, the war machine is in full force as our military-industrial complex benefits from escalating war. And the rhetoric against those who speak out is also escalating. 
Recently, a Ukrainian agency issued a list of Americans accused of disseminating Russian propaganda narratives, whom they have publicly denounced as information terrorists subject to being tried as war criminals. Well, that's right neighborly there. (laughs) Now, he says that list includes his son, Senator Rand Paul. It also includes people like former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, former U.N. weapons inspector Scott Ritter, former CIA officer Ray McGovern, people who suspiciously would be more noticeable to the American deep state than to the Ukrainian government. And as with Biden's administration, administration campaign against dissent in other aspects of American life, the agenda is to silence us. Pure and simple, because public outcry is the thing they fear the most. Ron Paul says we're seeing censorship everywhere, from big tech to the political persecution of those who don't toe the majority party line. I mean, California just passed a law to threaten doctors with having their medical licenses revoked if they disagree with the scientific consensus. Even peaceful pro-life demonstrators are now facing the wrath of the FBI, and in some cases are being shot without any consequences from law enforcement. Now, there's a reason the government is so afraid of your speech. He says it's because organized Americans speaking out ultimately change policy. And despite the government's shrieking harpies in the mass media, Ron Paul says the truth, they know, the truth is they know their house of cards is in big trouble. The economy's in crisis. Europe is on the brink. India and China are ignoring the Biden administration's demands. The silent consent of the American people is the only thing holding the regime together. That's kind of a powerful thought, especially when you consider that we can withdraw that consent. The question is, will we do it before it's too late? You know, you don't have to be for Vladimir Putin to be against what's taking place, you know, in, in, um, to be against, you know, the, the aid that's being sent to Ukraine. Frankly, as I look around, and I'm, I'm, not, in, I'm not just going to limit it to Ukraine and Russia, but I even include my own government. I don't see anybody who, who I would say is a good guy. I think the corruption is, is what has allowed most of these leaders to get to where they are. The ruthlessness, their, their flexibility, their lack of morality is the secret to their success. So when they cry about, well, but we need this and we need that. They're perfectly willing to let their people suffer. Just so they can hang on to power just a little bit longer. Yeah, I'm not really fond of that. The quicker we can withdraw that consent, the better. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Again, I want to remind you, I've got uh, an interview with uh, Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research coming up. That'll be in the second half of the show. want to give a quick mention here to garagedoorproservices.com. This is one of my premier sponsors. Located in St. George, Utah, serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, and also Colorado City, Arizona. They cover a lot of territory, But these are the guys you want to talk to for installation, service, and repair on your garage door. Whether it's a commercial garage door, whether it's a residential one, talk to them. 
435-525-2773, or go to the link that I provide in my show notes, garagedoorproservices.com. So a friend sent me a text, or a, a, I'm sorry, he sent me a message overnight. It was a link to a, a NBC story. The headline is, COVID death rates are higher among Republicans than Democrats. Data shows, you know, and it's, it, you know, I guess we're, we're coming back into cold and flu season. So it stands to reason that, yes, we're probably going to see a surge in, in cases like we've seen for the last couple of years. That's just part of people being indoors in closer proximity to each other, cold weather, the whole nine yards. But you have to wonder where that kind of thinking leads. Well, you know, it's higher among Republicans than Democrats. And they're saying it's things like vaccine hesitancy. Hey, I don't know how to say this. And, and every time I do say something like this, I guess YouTube is, is in the process right now of going back and removing content from my shows over the last couple of years. And all I can say to the, to the censors at YouTube is, I hope you ate your Wheaties. Because you're going to find there's a lot of shows to go through. And I'll be darned if just about every single one of them doesn't talk about this in, in some regard. But I have never regretted not taking the jab. I don't know of anyone who has refused to take that vaccine that was being forced on us. And the longer we wait, the more clear it is that the control group is not the one that is, you know, getting sick over and over. The control group is not the one seeing people die off for mysterious reasons. Well, we can't really explain it. It's just been, he was healthy and suddenly he just dropped dead. Yeah, we don't know what it is, but we know for sure that it wasn't the vaccine, of course. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> but the, the more disturbing aspect of that headline, COVID death rates are higher among Republicans than Democrats. Get you on. What, where does this lead? Are we coming to the point where we're going to have to start declaring our political affiliation when we seek medical care? There's a time I would have thought, now that sounds really far-fetched. I'm not so sure now. After what I've seen over the last three years, I can't exactly rule that out. So this kind of strikes me as propaganda. And I have a great article that I'm sharing today. Um, You can check this out in the show notes to Daniel Laddier from the Foundation for Economic Education. He wrote this back in 2016. So this this has been around for a bit, but he explores how propaganda works because... Some people actually want it. And for propaganda to be effective, it requires submissive subjects. So he points out, there's a principle in hypnotism that goes like this. A person cannot be hypnotized against his will. So if you want to participate with a stage hypnotist, you have to be a willing subject. You have to be fully cooperative. And so it goes with propaganda. For propaganda to be effective, it requires submissive subjects. As Professor Professor Nicholas O'Shaughnessy wrote, Propaganda is a co-production in which we are willing participants. Now, propaganda is typically defined as the dissemination of particularly biased information in support of a political or ideological cause. In his 1965 book, Propaganda, the Formation of Men's Attitudes, philosopher Jacques Ellul provided us with some of the basic characteristics of propaganda. It thwarts dialogue. It is geared toward the masses. It utilizes various media It is continuous, and above all, it is not intended to make one think. So it's it's to disable your brain. And if these are the characteristics of propaganda, then Daniel Lattier says, then it's no exaggeration to say we're surrounded by it today. Most news organizations have become partisan shills and propagandists. 
They provide viewers with a steady stream of videos and audio clips, images and articles, most lacking nuance and of dubious intellectual merit. But they serve the intended purpose of promoting an ideology while fueling disdain for the opposition. And they've become very successful in doing it. The reason they are successful, he says, is I fear that it's most people today want to be propagandized, even though they would never admit it. Most people want to be given ideological marching orders and talking points from an authority. Most people have zero interest and see little value in engaging with arguments put forward by those who hold differing positions, unless it's to ridicule them. Most people simply want to choose the news media organizations that best fit with their selected ideological camps and immerse themselves in their informational streams. Now, Daniel Latier says this realization is unfortunate, but not really surprising. Over the past few hundred years, we've had a massive democratization of public discourse and higher education in the West. A continually larger percentage of the population has gone to school for longer and longer periods of time, and it's been given the impression that as a result of this education, they are enlightened critical thinkers whose opinions have as much value as the next person's. Yet at the same time, we have to confront the question raised by Dorothy Sayers in her famous 1947 essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. She said, has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today when the proportion of literacy throughout Western Europe is higher than it has ever been, people should become should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined, end quote. So the fact is, though everyone goes through the education system today, most are not provided with the building blocks of thought. Most are no longer taught logic. Most are not taught how to engage in rational debate. In fact, they're taught to avoid complexity. Actually, we... we should be avoiding complexity because complexity is what what is that's where the propagandists thrive he says uh, daniel latter says if these skills were better taught in today's schools i highly doubt that our situation would be that much better if history and experience are any indicator the difficult realities most people don't possess the intellectual chops for doing battle with complex and controversial skills or they choose not to undertake the discipline necessary to acquire the skill ease dictates would be another way of putting this in the past, when confronted with new or different ideas, people who did not achieve the heights of formal education had the values and traditions embedded in their communities to fall back on. These provided them with a foundation, a common sense by which to assess the merit those opinions of those opinions that differed from their own. But today, hyper-individualism, increased urbanization, the breakdown of the family, and ideological divisions have caused a decline in the formative influence of community and reduced our access to the common sense that it can provide. Intellectually insecure and socially uprooted, many people are now desperate for some authority to cling to, to someone who will give simple expression to the inklings of thought and instincts to which they can neither give adequate voice nor adequately live out. So Daniel Ladier asks, is it any wonder then that so many people would seek out propaganda today and that its providers would be so happy to oblige? That one sends a little chill up my spine, but I, but I think it's true. I actually attended a meeting a couple of days ago in which a former attorney general from the state of Idaho uh, came to speak to a group that calls itself uh, the Magic Valley Knowledge Seekers. And I think what they're doing is actually very admirable. 
because they promote what they say is fair and honest, you know, discussion about, um, you know, current issues. But it was very clear from this uh, former AG's presentation on CRT, which, you know, really was, it was a political sermon wrapped in a kind of cherry-picked history lesson. And, and all it did was essentially gave people, here are the talking points, these are the things you need to know about CRT to understand that anyone who pushes back against it is probably just a latent racist who doesn't want to feel bad. Now, he was very subtle. He's a lawyer, after all, or was trained as a lawyer. And, and so there was, there was a fair amount of sophistry. But it was very clear that there was, uh, there was not a small portion of that audience that was sitting there who came to get talking points, as opposed to gather information that they could weigh and then, you know, move on with their own search for knowledge. Yeah. I know it's easier to let somebody else do the thinking, just like it'd be easier to let somebody else chew your food for you, right? I don't really feel like playing a baby bird, though, either when it comes to my eating or when it comes to my thinking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy to welcome a guest to the show whose whose work I have used many, many times. I've lost track of how many of his essays I've shared with my audience. I have Robert E. Wright with the American Institute for Economic Research. He has a PhD, but uh, when I tried to call him Dr. Wright, he says, please call me Bob. So Bob, welcome to the show, and, and it's so great to make your acquaintance. Same here, Bri. Thank you so much for having me on, and thank you so much for everything that you do uh, every day. There are so few true uh, voices in the, in the liberty movement. Every single one of us is of absolute importance in everything that we do. And uh, you're doing great work, and I, I hope you continue for many, many decades. Just till the problem's fixed. <laughs> so <laughs> however long that takes, then, then I will shut up and go back to whatever it is I, I should be doing. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the voices that have been at work for a long time. There are a lot of these voices that have been overlooked and even forgotten. And it was just within the last year that I became aware of a name, Wilma Sauce, S-O-S-S. I had not heard that name before, but I understand she has a fascinating story. And you've actually co-written a book called Fearless, Wilma Sauce and America's Forgotten Investor Movement. You've co-written this with Janice M. Traflett. Tell us just a little bit about how did you get involved in this project? And then let's dive into the life of Wilma Sauce. Well, I uh, wrote a book called Corporation Nation that uh, looked at the history of corporate governance in the United States, basically how uh, corporations make uh, collective uh, action decisions. I started about 1750 and I came all the way up to the present, but uh, the bulk of the research was um, be- before the U.S. Civil War. So I just was reading what historians call secondary sources to take the story up from the Civil War up to the present. And I kept running across this Wilma Sauce person. And they were all different stories and they were all fascinating. I, I was living in um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota at the time. And I thought, I got to see if there's a book about her. And there wasn't. And then I thought, I got to look to see if there's an archive. Maybe it's probably in New York City. I don't want to go to New York City. Uh, but let me just look. So I looked, and it turns out she has an extensive archive in, get this, Bri, Laramie, Wyoming. Wow. <laughs> 
So that was a direction that I definitely wanted to head in. Uh, and this was in uh, the late summer of 20, 2016. So uh, I got in my car and took a lovely drive uh, through South Dakota and the Black Hills and then cut through Wyoming and, and made it to Laramie, which is a lovely little university town. Uh, the archivists were great. They let me take pictures. Uh, so uh, I spent a week there taking uh, about 10,000 pictures of documents in, in her collection. And uh, the first and only time that uh, archivists have insisted that I drink water at my workstation, because normally that's verboten, right? Wow. Afraid to get a drop of water on something, but um, it's because of the altitude there. And, you know, from East River, South Dakota, I'm a relative, I was a relative flatlander, and, and they've had many instances where people got, uh, got altitude sickness doing research. So, um, and it, it turned out the woman's story was even more fascinating than, than what I thought. Uh, the thing most relevant to what you do is that she had an, a nationally syndicated NBC radio program from 1957 to 1980. Uh, ran weekly, and it was called Pocketbook News, and she basically translated the news of the week for individual investors so that they could make good choices regarding their investment and, and overall financial decisions. And she larded it with all kinds of jokes and anecdotes, and uh, it was a, a great way of, of enhancing financial literacy. Because as you know, in this country, Bri, uh, today, but even back then, uh, the government schools do not do a very good job teaching people about business, about economics, uh, or even about personal finance. So she helped to fill uh, a gap, and she was perceived rightly as uh, a, an independent voice in radio. She was not pitching particular stocks. She was just telling people, hey, this happened this week, and that means that you need to be on the lookout for X, Y, Z. And she did it for almost a quarter of a century, uh, even though she did not have a lovely voice for radio like you have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> her, her, the, the tapes of her program survive uh, wow. along with the scripts, uh, and I didn't listen to all of them. Uh, her voice, frankly, was kind of grating. Uh, some people called it um, – uh, similar to a, a strident mongoose, whatever that is. But mm. uh, I'll tell you, it's not good. Um, but the quality of what she was saying was so outstanding that uh, she was able to have a, a large a large following. Uh, you know, the ratings of radio, um, especially back then, were kind of iffy, but uh, it was estimated over a million uh, listeners for long stretches of, of, of her, her career. Um, she did it because she wanted to, uh, you know, extend uh, financial literacy, but also uh, to build a platform for the investor movement that she was a part of. And, uh, you know, she was derided as a corporate gadfly because she would show up at annual meetings, stockholder meetings, and wag her fingers at CEOs and say, hey, this is not right. You need to have uh, – women on your boards and the board chairmans would come back and say, well, yeah, if there were any qualified ones and then she would pull out of a pile, you know, a dozen, a dozen resumes of, of women who um, match the current board members qualifications. 
she would show up in costumes and to match what she was the point she was trying to make at that. Um, she would, uh, for, for example, um, she showed up uh, most famously in 1890s garb at a U.S. Steel meeting in 1949. And the journalists just flocked to her and they're like, why are you dressed like this? I mean, it would be the equivalent of someone today showing up, I guess, in a miniskirt with the flowers in her hair, you know, sort of <laughs> sort of hippie, hippie style, right? Because uh, of about 50 years. So um, she said, well, I just wanted my... I just wanted my uh, outfit to match the thinking of the directors of U.S. Steel. Snapped. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Somebody took a picture of her, uh, you know, and, and it went out over uh, what was called the AP wire, um, which is the equivalent of having like a viral YouTube video today. It just, uh, it went, it went bonkers. She was able to do that, by the way, to come up with such, um, such keen, PR and marketing stuff because she was one of the pioneers of the PR industry in the 1930s and, and 40s. While, uh, you know, a third of the country was standing in bread line, she was making a small fortune uh, doing PR work for uh, some heavy uh, industry firms during the Second World War, for the International Silk Guild, for an uh, opera mezzo-soprano soprano named um, Gladys Swartwout. Uh, for Dunhill Tobacco Company, for Saks Fifth Avenue, made much more money than her her husband did. Uh, and, um, you know, it was highly unusual in that period for a married woman to have a career, much less to make more money than, than her husband. Uh, it was, um, you know, unusual for a woman in that time period to have an undergraduate degree, which she had from uh, uh, Columbia School of, uh, School of Journalism. So uh, she came from a very sort of uh, troubled background uh, where her father either died or divorced her mom when she was young. And she was raised by uh, her maternal grandparents in, in Brooklyn instead of her mom who lived in, in San Francisco. Um, that's why she avoided the San Francisco earthquake because she was in Brooklyn uh, instead of in, in San Fran. Um, she had been born in 1900 during a bubonic plague outbreak. Uh, all the men, uh, mentors in her life all died uh, at, you know, unexpectedly at relatively early, early ages, but she didn't let any of that get her down, which is part of the reason why we called the book Fearless, because she was fearless. She just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, the cover of the book shows her with a megaphone. Uh, <laughs> And um, that's because she would go to corporate meetings and they would cut her mic. That so she just... brought her megaphone. They'd cut her mic and she'd just pick her megaphone up and start talking into the megaphone. So they started to, to having Pinkertons, private security guards, physically carry her out. So I've... she hired her bodyguard. I'm absolutely stunned that that I have not heard her name before. I I really like to think that I'm I'm good at trying to find you know just even as an example of the, this is the kind of person you should be. People who are willing to speak up, willing to to be that voice in the darkness, and and I'm I'm so grateful that uh, you and and your co-author Janice Trafflett have have taken the time to to write about to Wilma Sauce. I'm going to include a link in my show notes for those who are interested in the book and want to check it out. And we've, we're up against the break here, but Bob, we're going to come back. I'm going to pick your ample brain about uh, some of the economic stuff that's going on around us. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but something's afoot. 
can't quite put my finger on it, but I think you may have some answers that could help us. Are you game for it? I am definitely game. Okay, we'll be back with Robert E. Wright, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I am with Robert E. Wright, who is with the American Institute for Economic Research. That's AIER.org. And Bob, I'm really happy to get a chance to visit with you because, as I mentioned before, I've read your work for a long time. I learn a lot. I'm still a work in progress. My learning will continue till I take my last breath. And I've learned a great deal about economics and, and about uh, policy from reading your work as well as other contributors to AIER. And I really am anxious for a chance to just kind of pick your brain on the passing scene about what is going on with our economy. And and it's such a big subject, I'm not even sure where to begin. So to you, where's a good starting point to get a handle on, on what's taking place right under our noses? Well, uh, like Wilma Sauce, I uh, am a student of forward-looking economic indicators. So that is, you know, sort of glimpses into where the economy might might be going. And you know, a lot of numbers are involved, but it's really more art than, than science. I published a book uh, a decade ago with Simon Constable called something like the Wall Street Journal Guide to the 50 Most Important Economic uh, Indicators. And some of those had fallen by the wayside. One that Wilma Sauce used to track, for example, was um, burlap orders. And you might think, well, that's crazy, burlap orders. Well, burlap was used in furniture shipments. So when burlap orders ticked up, it was probably because furniture manufacturers thought that there was going to be an uptick in furniture orders and they wanted to make sure that they had the, the protective materials for the shipping process on, on hand, right? So that doesn't hold anymore because they stopped using burlap and so on and so forth. But it is sort of this game of trying to look as far into the future as, as, as possible. So you have some idea about where the economy's going to be going. And uh, there's always mixed signals. It's, it's by the time that all the signals are all pointing in one direction, you're already deep in the, in, in the stinky stuff. So um, there'll be, you know, some indicators that look all right and others that uh, look, look horrible, but more and more are looking horrible. Yeah, even those of us who really aren't um, well-educated in terms of economics or how to how to read the markets, we sense that something's not right. I sense it every time I go to the grocery store and I see, okay, the price on that is higher or the quantity or the, the, the size is smaller, but the price is the same. I'm feeling it at the gas pump. And, and there's just, there's a vibe out there that says not all is well. So I'm going to ask you what, in your opinion right now, what is the, the most uh, disturbing economic indicator? And then I'm going to ask you if there's anything that, that you see that's, that's encouraging. But first, let's start with the bad news. Let's eat the broccoli first and, and get that out of the way. Yeah, we're, we're definitely experiencing inflation. It has been uh, relatively tame the last uh, two months. Uh, we're not in a, dis, a deinflation uh, or deflation period, as some claim. It's just prices uh, haven't continued uh, to, to, to rise. 
but that's mostly because of the energy sector, and we know that there's a big shift going on there because of uh, OPEC, uh, you know, cutting. So we're going to see energy prices go back up, and uh, as long as that war uh, continues, which is a whole other whole other ball of wax uh, with Nord Stream um, being taken out. Uh, that doesn't affect us directly, but obviously that affects uh, world supply of natural gas. And um, so, yeah, energy prices are going to be going back up again. Uh, there's all kinds of uncertainty out there because the Fed, after you know, wrongly considering infla- inflation transitory, <laughs> now seems hell-bent on stopping inflation no matter what. So, uh you know, we could very well end up in a in a in a recession, uh, a, a deeper, longer uh, recession than than we've had so far. Uh, I'm a member of the uh, team. You know, two two consecutive quarters of negative real, real GDP growth is a is a recession, and, and unless there's some other you know clear explanation for it, like what happened in 2020 was clearly due to lockdowns. So. You know, I don't see any point in calling that a recession. But what we're going through right now uh, is uh, is definitely uh, a recession, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets before it gets better. There's very uh, little good news out there. Um, structurally, the best news seems to be that uh, people are willing to take um, hits to their real wages. That's their nominal wage, what they see in their paychecks minus inflation. Real wages have been trending downward. And when that happens, businesses don't have to lay off as many people. Everyone gets hurt. It's not good, but it is better than having some people with higher real wages and some people with no wages whatsoever because they've been uh, unemployed. And that was always one of the sort of mysteries of the labor market is why people seem to prefer being unemployed over just taking a, a, a wage cut so that their employers could continue to afford to, to pay them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that seems to have uh, have changed for whatever reason. Um, but it's still bad news. It's just not as bad as having, you know, mass mass unemployment. Uh, who knows in the current political environment what that would lead to um, in terms of, uh, you know, CRT and DEI and all of those uh, those woke ideologies floating around uh, out there. So, um, but in terms of um, leading economic indicators, very little, very little good news. And uh, so, yeah, things aren't things aren't looking good. I just want to follow up on on what you were saying about uh, you know that the woke ideology because I I see the the economic distress and I see it growing and I think it's probably it's going to get tougher. We're all going to feel some pain before a correction of some sort is allowed to take place. And I think back to FDR who saw that as a great opportunity. I mean, he wow, he he seized the opportunity and and uh, really went on the offensive. But can you imagine what would have happened had he been woke and implemented all the programs that he did? That's that's kind of a chilling thought to me. Well, I am writing a book right now about the Great Depression and the New Deal. And the tentative title is um, The First Great Reset. Mm. Because uh, there was 
for the period, <laughs> a lot of woke uh, thinking going on in, in Washington. Uh, you know, not not as radical as the stuff today, but you you know you they they couldn't have even attempted what they're attempting today back then. It just would not it would not fly, right? There's got to be some incrementalism uh, to it. So, uh, but there was a radical transformation of uh, U.S. the U.S. economy and society during the New Deal. And it was not good. And many of the things that are wrong with the country right now all trace back to the New Deal. So what we want to try to prevent, of course, is uh, another New Deal, call it a Green New Deal or, or what have you, um, from ruining the, the next century. <laughs> you know, uh, I've, I've done back of the envelope uh, estimates, but our GDP per capita, I think, would be about twice as high as it is today if the new deal had not occurred. Wow. So while we continued to grow, uh, some of that growth was due to the luck, so to speak, of first, uh, you know, uh, winning World War II and emerging from that uh, and then being the leader of the free, the free world uh, for, for decades. And uh, so, yeah, there was growth, but the, the growth was not all that all that fast. And if we didn't have all those uh, restrictions and restraints on free enterprise, uh, we would have grown much faster, and we sh- wouldn't suffer all the what economists call deadweight losses that we suffer now uh, from uh, the the massive massive regulation of of everything, and it just gets worse and worse and worse every every year. And and Trump tried to trim it and did slightly, but uh, not not enough. That administrative state just keeps growing and growing and growing and wants more and more of uh, of our resources, basically. And uh, it's a real it's a real disincentive to uh, to working harder, smarter, and faster, which is uh, always the key to you know more prosperity. Well, I hope I'm not being naive for hoping for this, but um, I'm okay if a correction takes place. In fact, I'm like, let, let it happen now. I'll let my generation, I'll take the hit as much as possible, and then my kids and grandkids don't have to bear so much. But um, I, I really would like to see it reach the point where all that regulation hits diminishing returns and somebody says, this isn't working, and we try something different. But, Bob, it has been wonderful visiting with you. Um Again, I'm going to leave links to AIER, links to your book about Wilma Sauce. And thanks again for your time. Great to visit with you. Thank you again for uh, for this and for uh, everything that you do. This is The Brian Hyde Show.